Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the State of Our Union is watching with horror but also admiration. We have breaking news this morning. Ukraine has agreed to talks with Russia as Russian forces continue their assault on Ukraine's largest cities. The talks could come as soon as today, and they will be held at the Belarusian border. That's according to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's office. The news of talks comes as Russians advanced into Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, where street fighting broke out as uh, Ukrainian forces try to hold back the invasion. In Ukraine's largest city, the capital, Kyiv, the mayor said this morning there was no Russian presence in the city. After massive explosions overnight near Kyiv, citizens there remain under curfew. And Ukraine says it intercepted a cruise missile from Belarus headed toward the capital. CNN is reporting that according to two senior U.S. officials, Russians have encountered, quote, stiffer than expected resistance from the Ukrainians. Late Saturday, the United States and Europe announced far-reaching new financial punishments against Russia designed to cripple the Russian economy, removing several Russian banks from the global financial system known as SWIFT. U.S. and European officials also committed to sanctioning the Russian Central Bank. That's according uh, to familiar and people familiar with the move. And that move would be without precedent for an economy of Russia's size. We are starting to get a sense of the human cost of this war. According to the U.N., there have been at least 240 civilian casualties, including at least 64 deaths since Russia launched its attack. And there are now 368,000 Ukrainian refugees. I want to go straight to the ground in Ukraine and begin with CNN Chief International Correspondent Clarissa War, who is live in Kyiv. Clarissa, Ukrainians are fighting to repel Russian troops in its major cities. What are you hearing and seeing about the latest efforts? So there have been quite a lot of activity this morning, a lot of explosions, mostly in the distance. That has gone very quiet uh, in the last 20 minutes or so. And it's unclear if that might be related to the news that you just mentioned, which is a big, big deal. Essentially, Ukraine agreeing to send a delegation to the Belarusian border near the Pripyat River to meet with a Russian delegation to presumably start negotiations to try to see if there is a way out uh, of this disastrous war. Now, earlier in the day, President Volodymyr Zelensky had agreed in principle to negotiations, but had said that they would not agree to them in Belarus or near the Belarusian border, because needless to say, Belarus is not neutral territory here. This is where all of uh, a huge amount of Russia's troops are actually pushing in from. 
Now, the Ukrainians put out a statement on their Facebook page where they said, uh, on, the, on President Zelensky's Facebook page, where they said, the politicians have agreed that the Ukrainian delegation will meet with the Russian delegation without preconditions near the Pripyat River. Alexander Lukashenko, that's the leader of Belarus, has taken responsibility for ensuring that all planes, helicopters, and missiles stationed on the Belarusian territory will remain on the ground during the Ukrainian delegation's travel, meeting, and return. So essentially saying there, Dana, that they have extracted a sort of guarantee of security from President Lukashenko that this Ukrainian delegation will be safe when they travel to go and meet with this Russian delegation. Meanwhile, though, the situation on the ground has uh, been a sort of continuous barrage from the Russian side, but they have definitely been finding themselves uh, encountering much stiffer resistance. Uh, as you mentioned, that's according to U.S. intelligence sources, but also, frankly, just what we're seeing on the ground. The expectation had been that a city like Kiev would fall in one to four days. We're now on day four. Uh, the Ukrainians are saying that they thwarted the advance of a column of Russian tanks in the western uh, part of the city. And while we did hear a lot of explosions last night, one particularly loud one that appeared to target a fuel depot, it is now, uh, at this hour, earlier it was still pretty um, pretty noisy, but now it does seem to be a bit quieter. And again, that may be because every side is waiting to see what, if anything, transpires from these negotiations. Although I should say that as of now, we don't yet have a timing on when they might begin. Dana? Yeah, Clarissa, we're going to talk a lot of, more about uh, that announcement about talks, which is, as you said, huge. Uh, with our guests coming up. But because you are on the ground and you have been doing such important, amazing reporting, can you just talk about the human element that you have seen, that you have witnessed? And frankly, because of social media, a lot of us have been able to see uh, on our phones. You've seen it in person at subway stations, everyday Ukrainians uh, kissing their children goodbye. What is that like and what are you seeing with regard to that human side of this at this hour? Yeah, I mean, Dana, it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, first of all, you obviously see the very natural human uh, reaction of fear. People were petrified, especially as this was beginning and the bombardment was starting. Most of them have never experienced anything like this in their lifetime. They were taking shelter in subway stations. They were bringing their animals uh, down there as well with no sense of when they might be able to go up above ground. Um, and a very real fear as well that there's nowhere safe to go in Ukraine. What's extraordinary, though, um, is that at the same time, we're seeing this incredible resistance and incredible courage. I mean, the images of a Ukrainian man literally kneeling down in front of a Russian tank, risking his life to try to stop it in its tracks and prevent it from moving on into the capital. And I interviewed yesterday as well at the train station where thousands and thousands of people are evacuating to the safer part of the country in the West every day. I interviewed a young woman. She and her friends own a, a bar here in Kiev. They're now actually using it to make food to give to Ukrainian police authorities. She had put her mother on the train to get her out safely, but she decided to stay. And I said to her, you know, this is really striking that you would have the courage to stay when you could get on this train and at least get somewhere safer. And she said, I'm not the one who should leave. It's the Russians who should leave, and I won't leave before they do. And that really stayed with me, Dana, that kind of tenacity 
and courage. It's, it's, it's been pretty humbling to see it. I'm sure it has. Thank you so much. And thank you for all of your reporting, Clarissa. Needless to say, you and your uh, crew there uh, should stay safe. And today, the United Nations will vote to hold a rare emergency special session on Monday. They're going to vote to hold that session on Monday about the Russian invasion. Joining me now is the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Madam Ambassador, thank you so much for joining me. Let's first start with the news from the Ukrainian President Zelensky's office that the Ukrainians and the Russians will meet without preconditions on the Belarus border. What are you hearing about that and how optimistic are you? Well, that's a decision that the Ukrainian government uh, has to make and that they have made. And we'll look forward to uh, what comes out of those discussions. Uh, As you know, Dana, we lean in on diplomacy with the Russians uh, uh, throughout this process. And we hoped that uh, that Putin would. Uh, find a, a way to uh, to the negotiating table, uh, and he made the unfortunate decision of aggression over diplomacy. But again, this uh, this news uh, is uh, uh, another effort by the Ukrainians to find a, a a way forward at the negotiating table. Effort by the Ukrainians, but from the point of view of Russia, do you think? based on the diplomatic efforts that you were involved in up until now, that this is a good faith effort by the Russians? You know, I can't get into the Russian, uh, uh, into Putin's head or into Russian um, uh, reasoning. Uh, So uh, it remains to be seen. But let's let's see what comes of it. But the U.S. does support this move, this diplomatic effort. We have always indicated that we wanted to find a diplomatic solution and and Russia chose confrontation. So, again, this diplomatic effort is one more effort to bring the Russians to the negotiating table. Okay, let's turn to new sanctions that were announced by Europe and the U.S., saying that they plan to remove, quote, certain Russian banks from the SWIFT system, the SWIFT financial system. Uh, But it wouldn't include the energy sector. As you know, that is a big part of the Russian economy. Why won't you remove all of the Russian banks and transactions from SWIFT? Look, this is this process continues and we're putting together uh, the list and we'll continue to work on that over the course of the next couple of days. Treasury can give you some details of what is going into uh, the process. But the purpose of the sanctions are to put as much pressure on the Russian economy as possible. And we want to do as much as we can to protect the impact on our own economy. But we're continuing to look at new and even harsher uh, measures against the Russians. You said the, uh, the, the things that you're putting in place now, you want to make sure to protect US, the U.S. and I'm sure uh, allied economies as well. Are you saying that by including the uh, energy sector, that that would put a burden on our economies? We have not taken anything off the table. We're continuing to look at this. We're ramping up as the Russians uh, ramp up. So there's more to come. And uh, while energy is not on, 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 uh, in this current announcement, it doesn't mean it's off the table. But we also want to do everything we can to protect our own economy from, uh, from the impact of this. 
Okay, so you also, as I mentioned, announced sanctioning the Russian Central Bank, and it's nearly $650 billion in reserves. And that's a move intended to, to crater the ruble. How quickly will that happen? And are you worried that Russians will retaliate? We are, this is happening very, very quickly. And uh, sanctioning the central bank keeps the central bank from providing protection uh, to the ruble and to the Russian uh, economy. And uh, again, I can't speak for how the Russians will respond to this. Uh, Vladimir Putin is, is, is very unpredictable. So uh, it remains to be seen how he responds, but he should know when he responds, we will be prepared to respond as well. We've seen some remarkable resilience from the Ukrainian people, but they're also pleading for more weapons to fight back. Uh, the Secretary of State Blinken announced up to another $350 million to that end. Is there anything more that the U.S. can do, like more military support, air support, intelligence, imposing a no-fly zone in Ukraine? We have provided not just this $350 million, close to a billion dollars over the past couple of days and billions uh, since this situation started. And we're continuing to work with the Ukrainians on the requests that they have, delivering support to, to them uh, on, on the ground and also bolstering our NATO allies on the NATO uh, on the border with Ukraine so that they are prepared to respond to, uh, to Russian aggression. And what about the no-fly zone? Is that something that's on the table? Look, the president has made clear that we're not going to put boots on the ground. We're not going to put American troops in danger. So that means we're not going to put American troops in the air uh, as well. But we will work with the Ukrainians to give them the ability to, uh, to defend themselves. So, Madam Ambassador, we're hearing from uh, air, people on the ground in Ukraine, reports of civilian deaths, seeing the damage to civilian buildings. President Zelensky just this morning said that Vladimir Putin is committing genocide and he should be tried as a war criminal. Do you think that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal and should he be tried as such? We're holding the Russians accountable at every level. And I have to say that we were appalled by the Russian use of uh, the word genocide to describe what the Russians are, are doing. They are the aggressors and they have to be held accountable, uh, whether it's in the United Nations or elsewhere. And all of that continues to be uh, discussed and is on the table. As you know, we will be having a discussion in uh, Geneva at the UN uh, Human Rights Council, bringing Russia before the Human Rights Council as well. And there's another resolution that we're bringing before the General Assembly and a special emergency meeting that we're requesting tonight. So we're keeping the pressure up on the Russians. You didn't mention a war crimes tribunal in The Hague. Is that also on the table? I think everything is on the table as we, as we move forward. Uh, but as we're dealing with the situation today, we're continuing to address all of those issues. During the very moment that you were giving your speech at the U.N. Security Council meeting, urging Russia not to invade Ukraine, Vladimir Putin was launching his invasion. What was that moment like when you realized that was happening? You know, it showed the complete and utter disrespect that the Russians have for uh, U.N. values, for the U.N. Charter. 
uh, there was a buzz across the room in, uh, in the Security Council as we all uh, began to get information that this was happening on the ground as we uh, were, were speaking. So again, uh, we're not surprised. The U.S. warned about this uh, for weeks in, in advance that this was going to happen uh, any day. So we weren't surprised that they did it, but again, it just uh, showed to the world uh, how, dis, uh, how much the Russians disrespect uh, the UN system and that, again, they are the aggressors here. You will attend a meeting of the UN Security Council later today to vote on holding an emergency session of the UN General Assembly. President Zelensky said that he talked with the UN Secretary General about stripping Russia of its vote on the UN Security Council. Would you support that? Look, Russia is a member of the Security Council that's in the uh, UN Charter, but we are going to hold Russia accountable uh, for disrespecting uh, the UN Charter. And they have been isolated in uh, many different ways. So uh, just to indicate 80 countries joined us in, uh, in uh, co-sponsoring the resolution. More than 50 countries joined us at the podium to call out Russia's uh, aggression. So the fact of their sitting on the Security Council uh, does not uh, mean they're protected uh, from criticism and protected from isolation and protected from condemnation. Before we go, nearly 2,700 Russians have been detained in anti-war protests in Russia since Thursday. I wonder what is your message to those Russian protesters? You know, I, I, we've noted this uh, information, and what it says is that Vladimir Putin can't hide what he's doing in Ukraine. And those uh, Russians who are protesting are extraordinarily brave uh, to be uh, protesting in, in their country. But again, it indicates that he does not have 100% support in his own country for what he's doing. And uh, we encourage those people to continue to make sure their voices are heard. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Good. Thank you very much. And now I want to bring in the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova. Thank you so much, Madam Ambassador, for joining me. So Ukraine and Russia agreed to meet for talks at the Belarus border on Monday. Is President Zelensky himself going to be part of that delegation? Well, definitely not. President Zelensky made a decision to defend the country. So he's in Kiev with the armed forces, with people of Ukraine defending the country. But of course, you know, we, as we said numerous times, we are always ready for peace talks. We would like the war to stop. We would like Mr. Putin to stop the war. So yes, we will. We send people uh, to, in response to, to, to this uh, suggestion to talk, to listen. Uh, but again, you know, we are ready for peace talks, but we are not ready to surrender and we will defend our country and uh, uh, we will win. Do you think that this is a genuine Russian uh, olive branch uh, or is this a ploy? It's very difficult to respond to that question when for the first day Russian armed forces are killing people in Ukraine. It's a full-fledged war. Uh, they are shelling at the private houses. They are shelling at the hospitals, emergency cars. There are groups of Russians uh, everywhere in the country. You see all these, you know, horrific 
uh, images, all of those are true. So th there is an ongoing full-fledged war with war crimes conducted by Russians in Ukraine on a daily basis. So how genuine is this proposal? We don't know. We are ready for peace talks, but we are defending the country at the moment. And we call on all of our friends and partners who are together with us to continue working with us and to continue supporting us in this fight. Because again, we of course would like peace talks, talks and we would like Russian troops to get out from our country mm -hmm. and leave us alone. But we are not prepared to surrender. There are no preconditions on either side for these talks. How far is Ukraine willing to go in order to end the war? Are you willing to consider letting Vladimir Putin keep Crimea, maybe the Donbass region? Well, I don't think anyone should even ask Ukraine how far we are ready to go. I think the question should be how fast Russian Federation is willing to stop the war, actually remove their troops from us and be accountable and responsible for all the devastating destructions they already inflicted on Ukraine during the past four days. Vladimir Putin is ordering his country's deterrence forces, which includes nuclear weapons, on high alert. Do you see this as a legitimate nuclear threat, or is it a bluff aimed at putting pressure on you, on Ukraine, ahead of these talks? Well, you know, after the full-fledged invasion and after four days living in basements and all of our people, not only military forces, but our startuppers and uh, farmers and gr bread growers and uh, business analysts, putting on vests and taking arms to defend their country, their homes, essentially, you know, because fr from this attack, it's, uh, you know, difficult to analyze the enemy. But I just want to remind that, you know, Putin attacked us in 2014. This is not the first time. In 2014, he attacked Ukraine, he illegally annexed Crimea, he illegally annexed parts of Donetsk and Lugansk mm -hmm. uh, territories, the puppet governments that are there, uh, they have nothing to do with Donetsk or Lugansk or with the people of Donetsk and Lugansk who almost two million people relocated to Ukraine. But what so, you know, we have IDPs throughout Ukraine. So right now we are fighting. It's a people's war, mm -hmm. as my minister, uh, f uh, foreign minister said today. You know, we are defending our country. What about that, the, the nuclear threat, the fact that Vladimir Putin put uh, the nation on high alert, including the nuclear arsenal I think this is this is yet one more example of a terrorist behavior of Russia I mean they they are attacked our country they are scaring everyone starting from the article that uh, Mr. Putin published in 2021 and his speech before he actually ordered his troops to start the war against Ukraine uh, you know everything there was about a the desire to destruct free to, to destroy free and democratic Ukraine, but B also uh, the idea that whole Europe should should be rearranged uh, according to somehow this uh, absolutely ungrounded and un understandable uh, idea. So as we said before, it's of course about Ukraine, but it's not only about Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It's about you know democ democracies. It's about uh, how. We can whether the international law and international rule of law still exists and whether any country can still defend itself. 
I know how loudly you and the president of Ukraine have been asking for help from European allies and the U.S. The U.S. and European allies are taking steps to cripple Russia's economy. Last night, it started to remove certain banks from the SWIFT global financial system. They took a big step of sanctioning Russia's central bank. And the EU just announced that it's closing its airspace to all Russian planes, including private aircraft. So knowing that that is the backdrop just of the past 12 hours, what further steps do you uh, and the Ukrainian government want the West to take to punish Vladimir Putin? Well, let me tell you first that we are very grateful to all of our friends and partners, and especially to the United States for decisive actions, for leadership, for standing with Ukraine, not only with statements and support, uh, uh, verbal support, but with concrete and specific acts, with helping us, with equipping us and helping us with defensive weapons, but also with these uh, decisive sanctions. Because it's important to punish Russia, mm -hmm. Russian Federation, for what they've done to us, for what they've done to us since 2014, but also for what they've done for the past four days. I mean, the war in Europe was not something anyone could imagine. And the, the, the pictures and images that you see on the TV, but something that Ukrainian men and women live in and Ukrainian children is 1941. We, we are re, reliving the, the images from the past yep. when, uh, the, when the Nazis attacked Kiev. Mm -hmm. So, so before I so let what you... we need more, ahead, we I'm need sorry. we need more weapons. Yes, we need more weapons, uh, and we need more sanctions. The sanctions should be elevated to, to 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 all the possible levels, and Russia should be isolated until it changes the behavior. Really quickly, before I let you go, President Zelensky said the 13 Ukrainian border guards on Snake Islands were killed and the world saw it because they heard uh, the people uh, on that island tell the Russian ship to go F itself and refuse to surrender. But Ukrainian officials are now saying that those soldiers might be alive and actually maybe surrendered. Uh, can you explain the discre discrepancy and what their status is? I don't have any other information than the, than the fact that uh, they were all killed after the end. I'm positive this is not one example. Okay. There are so many examples now of bravery in Ukraine. So, you know, but who, who is surrendering are the Russian troops. We already have more than 200 uh, Russian soldiers who surrendered. And unlike Russians, we do treat them according to all the international laws, feed them and uh, take their also uh, witness statements, because we already filed, as you know, the application with the HIP, Yes. And we asked also for the emergency expedited review. Mm -hmm. And uh, we intend to hold everyone who took this decision accountable. Okay. And I really hope that Russian people will do everything possible to stop their leadership so they are not accomplices to these mur murders. Madam Ambassador uh, Oksana Markova, Markarova, forgive me, Ambassador from Ukraine to the United States, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. 
Thank you very much. And 10 years ago, he was mocked for warning about the threat from Russia. Then Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney is now a U.S. senator and joins me exclusively next. Plus, Ukrainians are bravely fighting Russian troops, but they're fighting alone. Should NATO be doing more to help? I'll ask the NATO Secretary General coming up. Welcome back to State of the Union. During the 2012 presidential campaign, our own Wolf Blitzer asked Republican nominee Mitt Romney about America's enemies. This was his response. Russia. This is, without question, our number one geopolitical foe. They they fight every uh, cause for the world's worst actors. He was widely mocked for that answer. But with Russian tanks rolling towards Ukrainian cities and the crisis consuming the Biden presidency and threatening the world order, things look a little different now. Joining me now exclusively is Republican Senator Mitt Romney of Utah. Senator, thank you so much for joining me. I want to start with the news this morning, just minutes ago, which is that the Ukrainian president announced that Ukraine's and Russians will meet at the Belarus border. Do you see that as a good sign? Well, let me just pause for a moment before I answer that and just note the extraordinary courage of the Ukrainian people. Uh, They have galvanized the spirit of the entire world. And a lot of that is to do with real leadership. You've seen both physical and moral leadership by Zelensky and the people around him. uh, And uh, and it's the contrast between that kind of leadership and the puny nature of, uh, of Vladimir Putin's uh, tyranny that has, uh, has really helped people understand the difference between good and evil. We're seeing that uh, played out right now. As for the prospects of discussions at the border, uh, look, I, I hope and I believe that, that uh, Putin may well finally recognize that he made a huge error, that, uh, that he was badly miscalculated how hard the people of Ukraine would fight, and the nature of the world's response. In this modern world, with, uh, with war being conducted and people filming it and passing it around the world, uh, there's been a response that I don't think Putin had anticipated. I hope that's what he's doing. I fear he may be trying to take Zelensky off of the streets of, of Kiev uh, and by doing so, making the uh, Ukrainian people less willing to fight. But I, I, I hope that, uh, uh, that he's wising up to the stupidity of what he's doing. You're saying you think this could be a ruse? Well, I th- all things can be, you uh, I mean, you listen to, to Putin in the days leading up to the invasion. He kept saying, we're not planning on invading. Obviously, he was lying. Uh, and so you can't trust a word that comes out of his mouth. But at the same time, I-, I think he may be recognizing, he should be recognizing that this is not going well for him. NATO has come together. Germany is now saying they're going to be investing far more in their military capacity. They're providing more weapons. The world is, is behind the people of Ukraine. Look at those brave people in, uh, in Ireland uh, stopping the Russian ambassador. We should be doing that all over the world, by the way. The, the Russia government is a pariah, and the entire world should be protesting and letting Russia know how badly they're seen on the world stage. The U.S. and its allies just announced new sanctions on the Russian central bank and plans to remove some banks from the international SWIFT banking system. Was that the right move? And what more? You mentioned some things, but what additional steps should the U.S. be taking? Well, keep cranking that up. As Mitch McConnell said, you can't get the sanctions too high. At the same time, recognize that for the sanctions to be most effective, you want them to be shared with our allies around the world. 
Uh, we want to all be together on this so we can only go as fast as everybody wants to move together. So that's that's critical. Uh, but those sanctions will have an impact. I also uh, noted in that release from the White House that we and our allies are going to be going after the oligarchs, going after their mansions, going after their yachts. This is very good news and the kind of thing we ought to be doing. And I, I also think um, consideration of a humanitarian zone and no-fly zone uh, to allow people to escape from Kiev, if that's necessary, may be something that we need to consider as well. But let's keep on uh, cranking up the sanctions against what is a, an evil regime. I don't know if you just heard my interview with uh, the ambassador, U.S. ambassador to the U.N. She seemed to not think that a no-fly zone is a good idea if it means that there would be U.S. troops involved in enforcing that fly zone. Where do you stand on that? Well, I think it's something that you consider and uh, you may want to negotiate it with the Russians and uh, with our allies. Uh, you may decide that this is something that we would be done by the U.N. or by us. But uh, clearly the humanitarian uh, demand may may be such that uh, that we will look for a way to allow the mothers and children that are t currently being huddled in subway stations to be able to find refuge. Uh, and look at the people of Poland, how heroic they are providing the clothing and the, and the housing and the food for these refugees that are, that are pouring into their country and also in Romania. Look, look this, is, this is one of the, the, the greatest demonstrations of good versus evil that we've seen during our lifetimes. And, and the demonstration of courage. I mean, look, look at Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin, here he is in this, this, uh, behind this huge table in this big white room. I mean, it looks like a mausoleum where, where uh, honesty and honor have gone to die. And contrast that with Zelensky, with his courage, with his passion, which, with his true leadership. This is remarkable, and it's having an impact. And, and I hope it makes us a better people and it makes us more committed to the principles of freedom. Look, look, you recognize that in the history of the world, authoritarianism has been the default setting. And to have freedom, it requires people to stand up and protect it. And you're seeing the, the uh, terrible miscalculation by Vladimir Putin causing the kind of uh, commitment to freedom that we'd hoped we'd see. I just want to go back in time a little bit, Senator. Do you think it was a mistake for President Biden to rule out U.S. troops on the ground instead of trying to use what's known as strategic ambiguity to deter Vladimir Putin from invading in the first place? Well, there really wouldn't have been an ambiguity. We don't have the kind of troop strength uh, and, and material of war in the region to be, uh, to be a serious threat at, at, at that point. Uh, look, the, the, uh, the Biden administration has done some things very well and some things not so well. The not-so-well side is they continued the policy of prior administrations not to provide the defensive weapons that Ukraine needed. That was the mistake. The positive thing was sharing our intelligence with our allies and combining uh, our efforts with our allies. Look, we used to be 40% of the world economy. Today, we're about half of that. And, and so for us to have the kind of economic clout we used to have back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, we really do need to combine with our allies. And that's something President Biden has done extraordinarily well. I want to play an exchange that you had in a presidential debate with then-President Obama. You were running to defeat him. That was 10 years ago uh, in 2012. I want you to listen to that, and we'll talk on the other side. When you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda. You said Russia. In the 1980s or now, 
calling to ask for their foreign policy back because you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. I have clear eyes on this. I'm not going to wear rose-colored glasses when it comes to Russia or Mr. Putin. I don't need to tell you that you were mocked for saying that. Thoughts now? Well, first of all, uh, politics is a uh, extraordinarily interesting game. Uh, as you know, President Obama didn't quote what I actually said. What I said was uh, Russia was a geopolitical foe. He, I didn't say they were a threat. Uh, and a geopolitical foe, they obviously were and continue to be because Russia continues to fight us in every venue they have. They support the world's worst actors, uh, whether Assad in Syria, Maduro in Venezuela, Kim Jong-un in, in uh, North Korea. This is what they do. They basically poke us in the eye everywhere they can. Uh, China is the greatest threat to us long term, economically, militarily. And Russia, in a lot of respects, is circling the drain, given their shrinking population, uh, their weak economy. John McCain used to joke that Russia is a gas station parading it's a nation. So, uh, but they are a geopolitical adversary poking us where they can, as I've said. Uh, and I, you know, I, I don't look back so much and worry about what, what says is said during a political uh, campaign. What does concern me is that we've had president after president, not just President Obama, President Trump, President Bush, who, who were resetting relations with Russia, hoping as they looked at the eyes of Vladimir Putin, they could see a responsible person. And John McCain was, was right. He said he looked into Vladimir Putin's eyes and saw the KGB. And that's what we're seeing. A small, evil, feral-eyed man who is trying to shape the world in the image where once again Russia would be an empire. And that's not going to happen. And the people of the world see him and see Russia for what it is. And they're saying, no, we will fight for freedom. And what we're seeing is inspiring. It is powerful. And it will help change the world in a positive way. Well, given the way you just described Vladimir Putin, how worried are you that he is going to try to invade other non-NATO countries in the region, Finland, for example, or even NATO allies like Poland? Well, every tyrant uh, will judge what next step they take based upon the response to the last step. Now, of course, in the past, he invaded Georgia. He invaded uh, Ukraine by going into Crimea. Uh, he, he has obviously gone into our elections and, and attacked our cyber systems. And in each of these things, our response was tepid. And, and as a res result, uh, he feels emboldened to go into Ukraine. We finally are saying no. And in part because of people with phones and courage from the people of Ukraine, the world recognizes the difference between good and evil here. And, uh, and this, I think, is going to reset his calculation of what he would do. But let there be no confusion. Were he to attack a nation where we have an agreement to protect that nation under Article 5 in the NATO uh, articles, where, uh, in, in fact, an attack on one is an attack on all, we will respond with full force. We have a responsibility. We are people of honor and integrity, and we will fulfill our commitments. In President Trump's first impeachment trial, you were the lone Republican to vote to convict him. And you said then he, quote, delayed funds for an American ally at war with Russian invaders. That ally, of course, was Ukraine. And that infamous 2019 phone call in it, President Zelensky said, quote, we are almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense purposes. And then Trump responded, I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot and Ukraine knows a lot about it. 
again, reflect on that now through the eyes of what's happening on the ground? Well, I'm sure there are many people who would like to uh, ignore that. Obviously, that was a, a very sad and uh, an awful uh, exchange on the part of our president. Uh, this was uh, Zelensky, now a world hero, asking for weapons. And it was an American president slow walking the provision of those weapons in order to have Zelensky carry out a political uh, investigation on his foe. Uh, it was uh, wrong. Uh, it was in violation of a president's responsibility to defend our nation and defend the cause of freedom uh, and, uh, and resulted in his being impeached. Now, uh, I, uh, I think we at this stage look and say, all right, what are we going to do going forward? And, uh, and I'm pleased to see that, that President Trump, uh, as President Biden and others have come together and, say, and said, uh, look, we're, we stand with the U- Ukrainian people. Uh, but without question, uh, President Trump slow walking the provision of, of weapons to Ukraine was an enormous error. And, uh, and so was the error, I think, of our nation over some, some decades, not giving the kind of uh, military defensive capability that Ukraine needed to make the calculation that went through Vladimir Putin's mind uh, a, a more clear uh, calculation that, uh, that taking on Ukraine was not an easy thing to do. And by the way, Given the energy and the passion and the leadership we're seeing from Ukraine, I wouldn't count them out in being able to reject uh, Russia's aggression. You talked several times during this interview about the world seeing the difference between good and evil. I want to bring that closer to home and talk about something that Congresswoman Liz Cheney tweeted uh, yesterday about sitting Republican House members appearing at a white nationalist gathering. She said, quote, as Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar speak at this white supremacist, anti-Semitic, pro-Putin event, silence by Republican Party leaders is deafening and enabling. All Americans should renounce this garbage and reject the Putin wing of the GOP now. Do you agree? Absolutely. Uh, Liz Cheney was right with that statement, and she's been right for a long time. And I also saw... Uh, that uh, that Ronald McDaniel came out with a statement as well, uh, uh, talking about how repugnant these white nationalists are. Look, there's no place in in either political party uh, for this white nationalism or racism. It's simply wrong. Uh, It's it's uh, as as you've indicated, speaking of evil, uh, it's evil as well. And, uh, and, you know, I, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, I don't know them, but I'm reminded of that old line from the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid movie where, where one character says, morons, I've got morons on my team. And I have to think anybody that would sit down with white nationalists and speak at their conference was certainly missing a few IQ points. And just more broadly, the pro-Putin sentiment that you are seeing from some corners of your party. Well, a lot of those people are, are changing their stripes as they're seeing uh, the, uh, the response of the world and the political response here in the U.S. But how anybody, how anybody in this country which loves freedom can side with Vladimir Putin, which is an oppressor, a dictator, he kills people, uh, he, 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 he imprisons his political opponents, uh, he has been an adversary of America at every uh, chance he's had. It's unthinkable to be. It's, it's almost treasonous. And, uh, and it, it just makes me ill uh, to see some of these people do that. But of course, they do it because they think it's shock value and it's going to get them more eyeballs and maybe make a little more money for them or their network. Uh, it's, uh, it's disgusting. And I'm, 
I'm, I'm hopeful that you're seeing some of those people recognize just how wrong they were. Treasonous is a big word, so I just have to quickly follow up. Uh, would that include the, the former president? Well, I said it's nearly treasonous. There's uh, standing up for freedom is the right thing to do in America. And anything less than that, in my opinion, uh, is unworthy uh, of, uh, of American uh, support. Uh, meanwhile, I know that you're well aware that something big is coming your way to the United States Senate, and that is a, a Supreme Court nominee. Uh, Judge Ketanji Brown is uh, somebody who you have called an experienced jurist, but you did not vote last year to put her on the Court of Appeals. Are you open to voting yes this time? Yeah, I'm going to take a, a very deep dive and, uh, and have the occasion to speak with her uh, about some of the concerns uh, when she was before the Senate to go onto the circuit court. Uh, look, her, her nomination and her confirmation uh, uh, would or will be um, historic. Uh, and, uh, and like anyone nominated by the president of the United States, she deserves a very careful look, a very deep dive. And I'll provide fresh eyes to that evaluation uh, and hope that I'll be able to support her in the final analysis. Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, I really appreciate your time this morning, sir. Thanks, Dana. Good to be with you. And if Vladimir Putin is able to take Ukraine, what would he do next? The NATO secretary general will talk with us about the war in Ukraine and the broader threat to Europe. That's next. I want to get straight for the latest to CNN chief international correspondent Clarissa Ward in Ukraine. So, uh, Clarissa, you're in Kyiv. It is evening, as we can see, extremely dark. What is the latest there? Well, Dana, the evening started like pretty much every evening does here with those air raid sirens that we've become so accustomed to hearing. And you mentioned how dark it is, and that's because people have really been told to uh, keep their lights down. We've been told to take our live shot position off the roof, also to limit the amount of lights that we use. So that's why our shot might look a little more dim than usual. Uh, and despite the announcement of those negotiations that are expected to take place tomorrow on the Ukrainian-Belarusian border uh, near the Pripyat River. Um, there hasn't really been any let-up in the sort of booms and blasts that we uh, hear every evening here. I, I should underscore that it's difficult to know what's incoming and what's outgoing, uh, but there's certainly been a fair amount of activity continuing. Um, President Volodymyr Zelensky said about those negotiations to take place tomorrow morning that he doesn't necessarily expect that they will bear any fruit, but he wants to be open to every opportunity to try to de-escalate this situation. Initially, he had said that he did not want to go to Belarus for these talks because obviously Belarus is not a neutral actor in this. Uh, they have been working hand in glove with President Putin. Uh, and of course, there are many, many thousands of Russian troops in and around Belarus at the moment. So significant that they did shift their position and agree to meet at the border yet, uh, agree to meet at the border. But here on the ground, as I mentioned, we continue to hear the sounds of war going on. And certainly that's been in the, ca the case in the country's second city, Kharkiv, as well, Dana. Clarissa Ward, thank you so much for that reporting and all of the reporting that you and our colleagues there on the ground are doing. It's really, really important and breathtaking. Thank you so much. And today, the United Nations will vote to hold a rare emergency session Monday on the Russian invasion. Thank <laughs> you.
Welcome back to State of the Union. Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered his country's deterrence forces, which includes nuclear arms, to be placed on high alert. As we learned that Ukrainian and Russian delegations will meet for talks as soon as today. Here with me now to talk about all of this is the NATO Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Russia and Ukraine are agreeing to hold talks without preconditions at the Ukrainian-Belarus border. Do you believe that this is a positive sign, sir? I have absolute uh, full confidence in uh, President Zelensky and his uh, judgment on whether uh, it is right to to, uh, sit down and try to uh, find a political solution. NATO has supported a political solution uh, all the way. Uh, and, uh, And then it remains to be seen whether Russia is really willing to make some serious compromises and also to respect the sovereignty of Ukraine. Uh, Vladimir Putin is ordering his country's deterrence forces, including nuclear weapons, on high alert in response to what he called aggressive comments from the West. How concerned are you about that? The new statements from uh, from President Putin just uh, uh, add to uh, the very aggressive rhetoric we have seen from Russia for many uh, months, and especially over the last uh, couple of uh, weeks, where they are uh, not only threatening Ukraine, but so also threatening NATO-allied uh, countries and demanding that we should remove all our forces from the eastern part of the alliance. So. Uh, This is part of that, and it just highlights the importance of uh, NATO allies standing together, uh, North America and Europe standing together, and that's exactly what we are doing. And I would like to commend the United States for the leadership and also deployment of additional uh, U.S. forces to Europe. I understand what you mean, that this is kind of just the latest in the moves and the rhetoric that Vladimir Putin is making. But when you hear about nuclear weapons or nuclear facilities, that brings it to a different level in the minds of a lot of people. How about you? This is, this is dangerous rhetoric. Uh, this is, this is a, a, a behavior which is irresponsible. And of course, if, we, if you combine this rhetoric with what they are doing on the ground uh, in Ukraine, uh, uh, waging war against the independent sovereign nation, uh, uh, conducting full-fledged uh, invasion of, uh, of Ukraine, uh, this adds to the seriousness of the situation. And uh, um, that's the reason why uh, we uh, both provide support to Ukraine, but also why we over the last uh, weeks and months have uh, significantly increased the presence of NATO in the eastern part of the alliance. US, but also European allies are now stepping up with uh, more troops, more ships, more, more planes. And why we also uh, have to realize that we, we are now faced with a new uh, normal for our security. We need there will be some long-term consequences, and this is just uh, the beginning of the adaptation that we need to do as response to a much more aggressive Russia. I want to ask about that in one second. But Ukraine, I know you've heard the world has heard them begging for more help from Western countries. NATO announced Friday that it will provide additional weapons and air defense to Ukraine. When will it get there? Allies are providing uh, support as we speak, uh, and we have actually, uh, especially twin, since 2014, since uh, Russia illegally annexed Crimea, NATO allies have provided equipment, training. Uh, we helped them to modernize their command uh, and control structure, their defense and security institutions. And this, of course, is extremely important now because uh, now uh, Ukraine is attacked. 
uh, and, uh, and I commend the bravery and the courage of the Ukrainian uh, defense forces, uh, the Ukrainian people, and not least the, the Ukrainian president uh, uh, Zelensky. But, but, but the help that they have received over the years uh, has, is extremely important. We are stepping up with more uh, air defense systems, with more anti-tank uh, uh, systems, uh, ammunition, and, uh, and we do that to uphold, uh, help Ukraine to uphold its uh, right for self-defense enshrined in the UN uh, Charter. President Zelensky of Ukraine is sharply criticizing European leaders for not allowing Ukraine into your organization, into NATO. Listen to what he said. Today I asked the 27 leaders of Europe whether Ukraine will be in NATO. I asked directly. Everyone is afraid, does not answer. And we are not afraid. We are not afraid of anything. Ukraine applied for NATO membership back in 2008. It was never approved. So did NATO fail Ukraine? This war is uh, President uh, Putin's uh, responsibility. He, uh, he is fully responsible for the war, for the attack on, uh, on Ukraine. What NATO allies do is that we provide support to Ukraine and we are stepping up uh, 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 as a result of the invasion. Uh, we tried to find a political solution. Uh, we warned against this for uh, many months. Uh, and now we are uh, both increasing support to Ukraine, but also... Uh, increasing uh, the protection and defense for all NATO allies. No question that this is on Vladimir Putin. But if NATO, if, if Ukraine were allowed into NATO, one of two things would have happened. Either if this attack happened, the, all of NATO would have responded under Article 5, or Ukraine being part of NATO would have been a deterrent to, to Russia, and Vladimir Putin would have invaded, would not have invaded in the first place. So the question stands based on what President Zelensky said, should they have been allowed into NATO? We have supported their efforts to move towards NATO membership uh, to help them modernize uh, the defense and security institutions, uh, mm -hmm. to meet the NATO standards, to fight uh, uh, corruption. But the, at the end of the day, we need consensus, 30 allies to agree. That's the way we make decisions in NATO. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, uh, our message to Russia is that it is for Ukraine to decide whether they aspire for membership, and it's for 30 allies to assess uh, when and if uh, Ukraine meets those standards. As long as Ukraine is not a member, uh, they, are, they will remain a very highly valued and close partner, and a partner that, that we will continue to support. Uh, so regardless of uh, what uh, you may think about NATO membership, uh, there is no excuse whatsoever for Russia to invade a peaceful, democratic uh, a country as Ukraine. Right. Well, on that note, for the first time in history, you are activating NATO's response force and deploying additional military forces to its eastern flank near this region. Do these moves indicate that you think that Russia poses a real and potential, potentially imminent threat to NATO members? We don't see an imminent threat, but we see a much more aggressive Russia, a Russia which is contesting core values for our security, uh, willing to use force against uh, Ukraine, but also threatening NATO allies. And uh, that's exactly why uh, we, over the last years, uh, since actually 2014, have increased our presence and over the last months have stepped up further with thousands of more uh, troops uh, and also deploying uh, parts or elements of the NATO response force for the first time in a collective defense uh, mission. Uh, and this, this is something we do to remove any room for misunderstanding, miscalculation in Moscow about our readiness to protect and defend all allies. An attack on one ally will trigger a response from 
the whole alliance. And by doing that, we are uh, preventing yeah. an attack. We are preserving peace. And, and, that's, and that's the core purpose of NATO. And, and we've done that for more than 70 years and we'll continue to do that also in the face of a new and more dangerous security reality in Europe. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. And Russia is getting a tougher fight than many expected from Ukraine. What is the U.S. doing behind the scenes clandestinely to help? We're going to talk to two former top intel officials about that next. Welcome back to State of the Union. A lot of breaking news this morning. And here to discuss with me is former director of national intelligence under President Obama, Lieutenant General James Clapper, and the former deputy director of national intelligence under President Trump and briefly President Biden, Beth Sanner. Both are CNN national security analysts. Thank you both for coming in. Let's start with with what we've been talking about this morning. Uh, First and foremost, the fact that President Zelensky says that he has agreed with no preconditions to meet in Belarus with the Russians. What is your take on that? Well, it could be a good sign or, or not. I mean, this could be a, a sincere effort on the part of the Russians to, to negotiate, or it could be just uh, uh, going through the form of things and, and joining the uh, Ukrainians to lay down their arms and give up. So we just have to see how this pans out. I personally not... Uh, one for trusting anything the Russians say, uh, so we'll have to see. But it's, it, I think it's, it's, a, it's a positive sign. Well, you know, Putin has a couple choices right now. He can double down. He can, uh, you know, pivot, which this could lead to a pivot where he would have to negotiate or he could basically capitulate. That looks like off the table right now, but things aren't going well. So I, I think he's doubling down, but at the same time, maybe giving himself some space in order to pivot to negotiations. Whether he gives up on uh, total uh, taking away all demilitarization and uh, denazification, which means kicking out Zelensky, those would be kind of things he's going to have to come down on to make it serious. And I, I never understood why denazification means kicking out a Jewish president of Ukraine. But that's, a, that's for a different conversation. Um, Orwellian. Yes. Putin is ordering the country's deterrence forces, which does include nuclear weapons, to be on high alert. What does that tell you? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Dana, this, this is something that concerns me on the heels of his previous warning. And I'll quote, whoever tries to interfere should know that Russia's response will be immediate and will lead to such consequences that you have never experienced in history. Well, that warning and then uh, raising the uh, deterrence forces, meaning his strategic nuclear forces, to a higher state of alert uh, is uh, concerning, at least to me. And I'm sure the intelligence community is paying close attention to that. Scary. It is scary. Um, it also, though, I think is out of weakness. I think that this is exactly, you look at what does Putin's toolkit look like? We just talked about imposing sanctions on him that are actually Pretty significant, I think, very significant, especially at the central bank sanctions. What else does he have to do? He raises the alert. So um, it's scary, but he doesn't have much else. Well, but that's why it's scary, exactly. because he doesn't have much else. Exactly. I mean, you, you both have studied Russia for so long. Do you, th- do you think that he has it in him, and Putin in particular, to actually pull that lever, so to speak, or press that button? Well, I personally think he's unhinged. 
And uh, I thought Eugene Robinson, an editorial writer for the Washington Post, likening him to Captain Quig looking for his strawberries with a ball bearing in his hand. And I, I, I really worry about his um, acuity and balance right now. And, you know, here's a guy that really has his finger on a potential on a nuclear button. So that's, to me, bears close watching. Yeah, I... I think that, you know, we have said as an intelligence community publicly all along um, that Putin wants to avoid a nuclear war with the United States because, you know, obviously that would be bad. Um, so I'm still I'm still in the category of we should be worried, but um, I am more thinking that shields up America on cyber attacks. Mm-hmm. That's probably mm-hmm. what we'll see first. You'd think so? I do. I think that um, these sanctions are significant enough that um, he's going to start seeing some real pain. And what else does he have to do short of, you know, pushing a button, I think. And and he won't sit still for it. And the analogous uh, thing to do after the sanctions would be attacks against our financial sector. So you think the cyber attack, I was going to ask that, where would it be directed? Towards the financial sector or perhaps some portion of our uh, critical infrastructure. So we, we need to have our cyber guard up. Do we have the capacity for that? Well, you know, I think um, Americans watching today, everybody should go to work and change their passwords and update their, their security <laughs> systems because even simple things like that, um, there's a whole range of things that they can do. But certainly Russia is and has been inside of our cyber, our critical infrastructure for years, and so they have quite a bit of capacity. You're both two top, the top intelligence officials uh, formerly in the United States. What is the intelligence community doing right now, either to help Ukraine or to move along and amplify the protests we're seeing in Russia? Well, we don't have inside baseball anymore, but uh, I'm sure the um, intelligence community, which has, I think, been very aggressive, and for me, the contrast is with 2014 and uh, doing a lot more to expose what the Russians are going to do, uh, and which is something I think is appropriate, that we need to contest the information operations space, and I'm quite sure they're doing all they can to provide intelligence to the Ukrainians and uh, look for ways to exploit the dissent uh, in, in Mother Russia. And I was quite struck by the uh, wide-ranging, although in many cases small, demonstrations against the war in Russia itself. That's quite remarkable. From an intelligence point of view, how do you do that? Well, you pull out the Cold War playbook. I mean, we used to play these disinformation operations against Russia, against the Soviet Union, a long time ago. Now we have to amp them up and in a cyber world. And I think we have the capacity to do that. What does that look like? I don't know in detail what it looks like, um, because as Jim said, we're not on the inside right now. But I think that, you know, we could go as far as covert action um, in order to try to do disinformation in in Russia. Um, That's something that Putin believes we do already. Uh, So... You know, there's quite a bit of span there. But in terms of fighting on the ground and doing insurgency, we have a lot of experience that with um, the Afghans. All right. Beth Sanner, James Clapper, thank you so much for your expertise. Appreciate it. 
Thank you. Thank you. Much more on the breaking news out of Ukraine and the stakes for President Biden as he faces what could be the most important speech of his presidency. Our panel is next. The world has seen that Ukrainians are powerful. Ukrainians are courageous. They're on their native land and they're never going to give up to anyone. They will never betray it. Welcome back. And I'm here with uh, a panel that knows a lot about what is going on on the ground and the U.S. response. I want to start with you, uh, Colonel Vindman. What are you I know you've been in touch with uh, people of your home country, Ukraine, and talking to officials here. What are you uh, hearing? Yeah, just uh, I have to say my home country is the U.S. I came when I was you know, not quite the country you were born. I know. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. But there's there's some (laughs) some narrative out there that might suggest otherwise. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I I actually did speak to a very, very senior former official at the top of the hierarchy for the military. Mm -hmm. And they they're doing well. They're holding their ground, but they need some support. They need some uh, equipment. They've managed to um, establish territorial defense forces large, vast numbers of territorial defense forces, but they don't have the helmets and the body armor to equip them. So those stockpiles exist in the United States, and they need to get there today. So that's, that's an important thing. Yeah. Uh, air defense, anti-armor, radios are critical. They're operating in small distri- distributed groups, destroying uh, logistics uh, trains for the Russians. Those radios are, are critically important. And then, of course, all the stuff that uh, our allies have from their Warsaw mm-hmm. uh, Pact from that uh, Soviet era, there are planes that could backfill Ukrainian losses. There are artillery that could yeah. backfill Ukrainian losses. And even the stuff that we were providing to Afghanistan is now sitting in storehouses, That's- needs to get, get there, and it needs to get there right away. And, and Congressman, you yeah. uh, are coming back to session this week. How much yeah. will the United States Congress do to provide some of what yeah. we just heard from Colonel Vindman? Well, I think we're going to have you know, unanimity around supporting Ukraine, basically, in this moment. We've all, I think, been inspired uh, by their resistance, we understand uh, that we need to provide them with the tools to defend themselves and also to punish Russia. And so wh- wherever we were in terms of the Congress a few weeks ago, that has completely changed now. I think we're going to see a bipartisan response to this. And so now we need to do the things that Colonel Vindman is talking about, providing the Ukrainians with the tools that they need. Some of it should have been done earlier, you know, and I think we know that. But now we need to get it in. Susan Glasser, somebody who spent a lot of time in Russia, when you hear that President Putin is putting uh, defense forces on high alert, including the nuclear arsenal, what does that tell you? Uh, Look, this is an incredibly dangerous moment. It's an enormous crisis inside Russia now as well for Vladimir Putin and the stability of his regime, which has lasted for more than 20 years, is something he put everything on the table with this extraordinarily risky move. And there is a great potential for it to blow up in his face. And I think when you see this this incredible image of the leader of Russia, uh, you know, with his two military commanders, the defense secretary and the head of the general staff sitting 15 feet away from him, uh, it's got a late stage dictator feel to it when he says, you know, raise the alert of the nuclear forces, Dana. We need to be very concerned about this. It suggests that things are not going according to plan for Vladimir Putin. And it suggests, remember, he said in his speech when he announced this unprovoked aggression on Ukraine, he suggested, you know, and don't you screw with me, you in the West, because we have very powerful forces beyond what you've ever seen. But uh, it's one thing to deploy nuclear rhetoric. Uh, I think he's really trying to reestablish a kind of red line with NATO and the United States 
that his own actions mm -hmm. uh, have kind of... I think, I'm sorry, I just want to yeah. comment on the nuclear stuff because it's really important. He's trying to accomplish through uh, nuclear coercion now what he couldn't establish through facts on the ground through the performance of his military. We should remember there's, there, there was a long history of a Soviet Union with nuclear saber-rattling, and we should not be intimidated by it. Mm. The rules of, uh, there's a well-established playbook and a well-established way to operate between U.S. and Soviet forces that Vladimir Putin knows. He's a KGB officer that we've forgotten. We need to relearn those. And it, this nuclear signaling is a critical component of it. But Alex, what that, I would say, though, yeah. is that we are right now uh, at a more dangerous juncture point than we were even at many periods in the Cold War. We have fewer uh, agreements between the United States and Russia uh, governing uh, strategic encounters than we did at that time. We have contacts that have frayed. But I think what's important is actually Putin's aggressive, reckless actions have united the Europeans and they've united the U.S. Yeah. This is the most unified the U.S. has been around Ukraine in decades. And I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, in 2019, I was at DOD when Lieutenant Colonel Vindman was raising the alarm about getting military aid and um, security aid to the Ukrainians. Most Americans didn't understand why that mattered then. They're seeing these fighting forces. They're seeing this animating hero that is President Zelensky. And they're realizing these are pro-democracy people standing up for their borders. And I, I, I will say the, the best thing in this moment is just the united front that the West yeah. is showing against it's, Russia. It's really important to discuss this nuclear question because this is what he's relying on. Does the West, does the U.S. have the nerve to maintain its resolve? Now, we're actually not the ones that are going to decide this issue. It's the Ukrainians that are fighting. Mm -hmm. They've seized the initiative. He's, he's trying to threaten us on other things like economic support. Those are the things that, that he's concerned about. But we have to remember that this is part of the, the uh, playbook, mm -hmm. that uh, Putin is not a madman. He's not suicidal. He has no interest in waging nuclear war because that's mutually assured destruction. But he's using it as a tool to intimidate us. You were in the region yeah. a month ago or so. Do you agree he's not a bad well, man? You know, I think that we have to you know, be concerned, uh, but not be intimidated. Uh, right. Because you know, Vladimir Putin is riding the tiger right now. Yeah. And the problem with that is you can't get off or the tiger eats you. And so I agree with Susan that this is maybe in many ways a more dangerous moment than we were in even in the Cold War. There is no Politburo. You know, he's mm -hmm. the, the modern czar now. He's the one making every single decision. And I do think that as these economic sanctions bite, and they are going to bite, and they are biting, as this becomes existential for his reign, that the threat level will go up. And so we have to be prepared for that. Yeah, I just, damn it, final point on that. Like, Vladimir Putin ha is escalating because again and again, his bullying and escalation has worked. Yeah. Uh, and he has used violent force before. Remember, this is someone who's invaded uh, his own territory in Chechnya with a brutal war. He has invaded other countries. He has killed his opponents. He has assassinated them. He has eliminated legally and in other extra-legal ways all opposition inside Russia. So escalation has worked for him again and yeah. again over 20 years. But it's I, lessons of impunity that he's right. carrying forward. That's it's right. lessons well, of not being accountable that he's carrying forward. So we're in a more dangerous situation now than we have been in a long time because we didn't have the nerve to, to push back. Now we're at this crisis point, and we have to maintain our nerve because there's nowhere else to go. These are now vital national security interests. But once we get past this point, we'll rebaseline the relationship in a much, much more healthy manner where we're staking out our ground, we're protecting our interests, and he's not going to be able to get away with intimidation. It is dangerous, well, he, but we need, to, we need to hold our ground. Absolutely correct. And he, he vastly underestimated the collective will of the Ukrainians and their fighting capabilities. 
we're all familiar with the concept of asymmetric warfare, but what we're seeing is asymmetric will. Where you have the Ukrainians, they are defending their homeland, where they live, their, their life, their democracy, their freedom. They're outmanned, outnumbered, out-aerial supported, but they're winning. And, you know, they, they, listen, things are still very tenuous. We don't know where this will end. But I think the world is united around this powerful force, and I hope that the aid is going to come from everywhere it should, supplemental in Congress as well as our European allies. And I'll just say, when I was there, I met a young woman named Alicia who told me that she was going to get her white wine and her Kalashnikov mm-hmm. and defend her country. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I believed her. Looking her in the eye, I believed mm-hmm. her. And we're actually seeing that now. Mm-hmm. And it really is remarkable. It really is. And I think it's, they're fighting for democracy around the world. And they're on the front line of it. Uh, but that's why they were invaded. Real quick, uh, President Biden is giving a State of the Union address in front of Congress, obviously, this coming week. What are the stakes? This is an incredibly significant moment for the Biden presidency. His approval ratings have, you know, really they're in the dumps where only Donald Trump is the only other president who've been this low uh, one year into the presidency. Uh, It's not clear. Americans are rallying around Zelensky, but you continue to see a real partisan divide uh, even inside on the question of Ukraine and Russia, you you see many Republicans criticizing Biden uh, for that, while at the same time praising Zelensky. So it's a reset moment, Dana. But I don't know uh, that anything can change Americans' opinions right now about President Biden. Thank you all so much. Appreciate it. Fantastic discussion. Uh, be sure to tune in to what we were just talking about. Tuesday night will be the President's State of the Union address, and CNN will have primetime coverage that begins at 8 p.m. Eastern. Now I want to turn to another really big story this week, which is that President Biden made his pick for the Supreme Court. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, a 51-year-old appeals court judge, former public defender, who would be the first black woman to sit on the high court. And here with me to talk about that and what could happen is the Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin. Mr. Chairman, thank you for joining me. You said that you're going to move forward on Judge Jackson's nomination immediately. When will you hold a Judiciary Committee hearing, and when do you expect to have a confirmation vote? Thanks, Dana. The process is underway. Uh, With the President making the announcement of the nominee, we have prepared the traditional Senate Judiciary Committee questionnaire forwarded to the White House and waiting for their reply, which we think will be done very shortly. Uh, We will then give an opportunity to members of the committee and other senators to meet with the nominee uh, and schedule uh, a hearing in in a a practical time uh, as soon as possible. Uh, This is a, uh, we have an advantage in this case because uh, this judge, Katanji Brown Jackson, has been before the committee as recently as last year where she was considered for the D.C. Circuit Court and that uh, was, in fact, her third appearance before the Judiciary Committee. Each time she received bipartisan support. So we know her record as of last year. Uh, we have, a few, have to update that, and we're ready to go. Oh, well, you mentioned that she was just uh, before, not just your committee, but before the Senate uh, when it voted for her job that she currently has on the circuit court. Then three Republicans, Lindsey Graham, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins, supported her, her for current role. Senator Graham is already suggesting that he's a no. Uh, Senators Murkowski and Collins haven't said either way. In the end, do you think this is going to be a bipartisan vote? I want it to be. I've reached out to many Republicans you have not mentioned, uh, asking them to keep an open mind and to meet with her, uh, ask the hard questions, uh, ask for materials. We'll provide them. We're going to go through the regular process here. 
but it is in the best interest not only of the Supreme Court, but of the United States Senate for this to be bipartisan. Uh, if we can have that kind of support emerge, I think it will be a positive thing for our country. And I have to ask, Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have bucked the party on your agenda on other nominees. Are you confident that you will have all 50 members of your Democratic caucus on board? Dan, I don't know as I sit here, but I'm going to work hard to achieve that. Uh, I've started reaching out to make sure that our caucus is uh, united and strong. I think we start in a very positive position, but I won't assume a thing about any colleague until they've told me. Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, called Judge Jackson, quote, the favored choice of the far left and dark money groups. Is it true, uh, excuse me, it is true, I should say, that progressive groups like Demand Justice did suggest that President Biden should nominate her. But what is your response to that overall line of attack? We have seen this dark money uh, approach uh, used as to the Supreme Court vacancies over the last uh, decade or more. The Federalist Society sent an approved list to uh, President-elect Trump of people that they would ask him to nominate to the court and did that a second time as well. Uh, So their sources of funds are not known. They're dark money sources. And Judicial Action, one of their uh, groups, uh, actually started advertising uh, against the nominee of Biden before he announced it. I mean, so the other side has used dark money and and used it to a fairly well. I think it's kind of tough for them to sell the case that uh, we're the ones who are kind of darkening the process. I want to turn to what is happening in Ukraine, sir continuing to, the Ukrainians are continuing to fend off a Russian invasion. And we're learning about upcoming talks between the two sides in Belarus, or at least on the border. The Ukrainians are pleading for more support from the West. Uh, The Senate comes back this week. What are you going to do? I'm going to support not only uh, military aid to the Ukrainians, who are fighting a valiant battle uh, against the odds. And to this moment, uh, fingers crossed, they are doing so well. I, mean, I want to make sure we not only encourage them, but do it uh, with the things that they need to defend their country and to stop this invasion by Vladimir Putin. And I also want to say that uh, I will support humanitarian aid to those countries surrounding Ukraine who are going out of their way to help. Poland it comes to mind immediately. Uh, I don't know the latest estimate. It's tens of thousands, if not more, of refugees coming across the border and more to likely arrive. Uh, looking at the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, all of these states uh, are, are doing their best to help out. We need to stand united through NATO and with these countries, give them humanitarian aid, and Ukraine the military assistance it needs to succeed. President Zelensky just said that he doesn't expect much from the talks that I mentioned that are going to happen on the Belarus border on Monday. What about you? Do you think that anything can come well, out of it? Are you optimistic at all? I wish for the best, of course, and I always prefer diplomacy over war. But uh, Zelensky, an extraordinarily courageous leader in that country, if he thinks it's in the best interest of Ukraine to make this effort, I stand behind him. But I would hope that it accompanied with a ceasefire on the ground in Ukraine while these talks are underway. Uh, Innocent people are dying because of the indiscriminate uh, shelling and bombing by Vladimir Putin. Uh, President Trump called him a savvy genius, genius. I call him a savage war criminal, and I don't think we ought to make any excuses for him. But if Zelensky thinks this holds out any glimmer of hope uh, to negotiate a peaceful end to this, uh, I'll support every effort he makes.
We have about 20 seconds left. When you hear uh, Vladimir Putin talking about raising the defense levels, including the nuclear arsenal, how concerned are you? Of course, we take it seriously. Uh, these are dreadful uh, and dangerous weapons uh, that could change the face of the world in a moment's notice. Uh, but it is nuclear saber rattling, as one of your guests said before. Mm -hmm. I, I want to tell you, I'm going to get in trouble, but your interview with Mitt Romney, I thought when it was over there, okay. what do I disagree with? And the answer was nothing from Mi start to finish. Mr. Chairman, so we're out of time. Thank you so support. much. I'm, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Thank you very much uh, for watching and the news continue, for being on. The news continues next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.